You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. You do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you. But for blasphemy, being because you, you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If you called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. And they said, John did no sign that everything that John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this incredible chapter. And uh, there's so much here, oh Father. So much content. Oh Father, we ask that, Lord, you would lift our minds and lift our hearts, oh Father that we would come to see the, the beauty and the wonderful things that are here in this chapter. Father, we would see um, these beautiful nuggets and that, Father, you would press them upon our hearts and that, Father, in doing so, you would continually shape and mold us and make us more in the likeness of your Son, oh, Father. Do this work through your word. Speak to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen. Uh, this morning's um, text is, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit lengthy. We've had longer texts that we've dealt with, but there is so much here. Uh, we, we're certainly not going to be able to cover it all. Uh, and we will need to put our thinking caps on a little bit this morning to plow through that, just giving you a little bit of a heads up. So... Uh, you know, pray that the Lord will sustain your uh, thought and attention as we uh, go through this, but it, it'll certainly be worth our while. And as we're praying that the Lord will give us a sustained attention to uh, to this text, I, I want us in the backdrop to be thinking about the words heart approach 
In fact, the title of the message this morning is The Heart Approach. And I toyed around with some other uh, titles that I think were clearer, but I kind of like this one because it's a bit mysterious. And I think it's kind of crying out to, what exactly are you talking about? It's, it's crying out to be investigated, and I wanted that. The right heart approach or the heart approach. And that's what I want to talk about is the heart approach. It, it's, it's the importance of having the right heart for the job, we might say. Um, you know, if your position at work has anything to do with hiring, uh, then you find yourself from time to time uh, interviewing candidates. And hopefully when you're interviewing candidates, uh, it's not just a resume that you're looking at. It's not simply uh, the school that people went to or the experience that they have. Uh, hopefully uh, what we're also looking at is the heart attitude, the heart attitude the right heart for the job, if you will. Um, this morning, I want to look at the right heart approach, uh, namely for the job of spiritual discernment. Because here we see in this text that we've got some really religious people here who are failing at spiritual discernment. Um, so uh, we want to look at this uh, heart approach, if you will. Now, let me go and explain, let me make our way through these verses and through this text and explain some things. There's some things in our text that are difficult to understand. Let's see what we can do about offering some explanation, and then we'll return uh, to this idea of heart approach. You look at, at verse 22 there, you see there's a time frame given, the Feast of Dedication. We don't really know how much time takes place between verses 21 and 22, but it seems that there uh, is probably a, a matter of weeks uh, uh, between these verses. It seems that there's some time has elapsed here, and uh, we're now the Feast of Dedication. Someone might say, what is the Feast of Dedication? You know, in reading the first five books of the Bible, I never really came across this Feast of Dedication, and that is correct. It's not listed in the first five books of the Bible because the Feast of Dedication hadn't even been created yet. Uh, it's something that takes place during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. You know, you might remember from high school uh, history or maybe even from humanities in college, the story of Alexander the Great, how he conquered the known world in a really swift time. If we were military students in the academy, we would know that name very, very well. Uh, we'd be spending time studying his military prowess. He conquered the world in, in an amazing uh, uh, speed, if you will. But he dies at a very early age. If I remember right, what, 30 years old he dies. Uh, and four of his generals take, uh, take over the, then the known world. And down through the, as, the, as the calendar pages get turned and turned and turned, eventually residing in authority over the Holy Land is a real scoundrel, real rascal by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes overruns Jerusalem and he desecrates the temple. He goes as far as to offer a pig, a swine, which was an unclean animal. He offers a swine as a sacrifice to Zeus on the altar of God's holy temple. And this creates, as you can imagine, outrage. Uh, the Jews, um, they, they revolt 
uh, against them, and, and they actually are victorious under the leadership of, a, of another historical figure by the name of Judas Maccabeus. And in 164, 165 B.C., the temple was rededicated. And as the temple is rededicated, there is a feast that takes place that in many ways resembles the Feast of Booths. It looks a lot like the Feast of Booths. It's not a feast where the Feast of Booths was a feast that required Jewish males to pilgrimage into uh, Jerusalem. Uh, this, this feast or the observance of the Feast of Dedication, if you will, could be done at home. Uh, but in many ways, the feast looked a lot like the Feast of Booths. And uh, as they uh, celebrate the rededication of the temple, they decide to go ahead and make this an annual feast. And this is where we're at. This takes place. We know it takes place on the 25th day of uh, a month on the Jewish calendar, which roughly aligns with our month of December. It roughly aligns with our month of December. It's actually the 25th. And uh, today we know this feast of dedication with the name Hanukkah. You've heard of Hanukkah. Uh, that is what is in view here uh, with Hanukkah. Uh, so here we find Jesus. He's in Jerusalem at this feast of dedication. Uh, John explains that it was winter. There's a clue there that he's reaching out to Gentile folks with his gospel. Uh, the Jews would not need to know that. It'd be like someone telling us that Christmas, it was Christmas time and it was winter. Um, okay, thanks. Uh, got that. <laughs> uh, we, know, we know that. Um, so he's reaching out to Gentile folks. In verse 23, we're told that Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, or some of your translations may say the portico of Solomon. There was a roofed porch with all these columns. And if memory serves me correctly, I think I remember reading uh, somewhere at some time that uh, this was really one of, uh, it was still called Solomon's Porch because I think it was still a remnant of Solomon's Temple, still left from Solomon's Temple. Don't hold me to that, but it seems to me that I read that somewhere. It was on the eastern side of the, of the temple, but what we know for sure is that Solomon's Colonnade is going to be an important place when we turn to the book of Acts. Uh, because if you read uh, Acts chapter 3, you read Acts chapter 5, you'll see there's some significant preaching and some significant ministry that takes place in the name of Jesus there. And it might be uh, why John is calling attention to that fact. Um, in verse 24, there's something there that uh, I think could go by practically unnoticed to us, but I want to bring it out because I think it's very important. Notice in verse 24, we're told the Jews gathered around him. They gathered around him. Uh, what they're doing is they're actually encircling him. And um, we know a little bit of the context here. Uh, how did things go in the last talk Jesus gave with these guys? Um, when I was growing up, we had a, a, a phrase we used to use when things went that way. We, we called it a whooping. Um, Jesus had done, some of you know that phrase. <laughs> Jesus had done giving them a whooping, didn't he? Um, he had used uh, three words in particular to describe them, uh, thieves, robbers, and if we might borrow a, a word from the King James translation, hirelings. Uh, thieves, robbers, and hirelings uh, is how Jesus refers to these guys. That's a whooping. 
And now Jesus is back, and here they're in the temple, and they're gathering around him. Now, the best construction that we give on this, I think the best way I know to illustrate the best uh, construction that we give on this uh, is really an experience that that I had when I was uh, nearing the end of my studies at RPTS. Uh, At that time, there was a number of pulpits open in the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. And I had a number of of, uh, uh, professors that were really encouraging me to candidate for those pulpits, for one of those pulpits. And uh, sometimes you'll hear me talk about the RPCNA. Uh, One of the the distinctions that would be between us and the RPCNA is the RPCNA is a group of people that sing psalms in worship, and they sing psalms in worship exclusively. And in my time in seminary and singing psalms, I come to love singing psalms. When we sing psalms here once in a while, a cappella, because they're not instrumental as well. There's no instruments. And they sing only the psalms uh, to conviction that they have. Uh, it is beautiful. Um, it, is, it is really beautiful. And I have to say that probably, arguably, many of my favorite times of worship here is when we're doing just that, singing psalms, a cappella. We're singing God's Word. Uh, and everyone is free. You're not tied to a, an instrument where you've got to worry about a chord, you've got to worry about a note. Your mind is free to be able to worship. Um, those are the distinctions. And I never arrived at a position on that where I believed it would be sinful to sing a hymn in worship. Uh, so I was never really able to adopt uh, that. There was many other things about the RPCNA I loved. I loved the people. Went to school with so many of them. The professors I absolutely looked up to and adored. The president of the seminary I became very close friends with. And they were, hard, they were hitting us hard, weren't they, Tammy? They were hitting us hard. We got these pulpits open. Uh, think about it. Pray about it, please. And I know at one point after a chapel sermon, uh, two of the professors, uh, Bruce Beckenstow and C.J. Williams, they cornered me. They called me aside, and, and they were like, listen, if you want to do this, we can go to bat for you. We can, we can make this happen really quick. Think about it. But it wasn't until Dr. Perteau, called me aside and asked me if I, he considered, he, he told me he would consider it a personal favor if we would go to a, a church up in near Newcastle called Rose Point, if we would go up and candidate up there. And at that point, I wasn't able to, I, I was not going to tell him no. Um, it was such an honor for him to ask us to go do that. So we went up there, we preached a morning service, and uh, then a, one of the elders, just a dear, a dear, a dear fellow, took Tammy and me, Tammy and Samantha, uh, to his home and, and um, offered hospitality for the afternoon. A beautiful farmhouse, um, some beautiful far, a beautiful farm. The country up there is beautiful. And um, he, you know, we, we had just a wonderful afternoon with him. We went back to the church. I preached another sermon. And then after the, the second sermon, there was a time where the congregation was able to ask me questions. And mind you, in the con- congregation, there were seminary students. Um, as I recall, all of the seminary, seminary students were, um, uh, were either freshmen or they were in their second year. I don't think there was anyone that was in my class actually there, as I recall. There was at least one retired minister there. He was the one that was leading the service. And I don't think there were any seminary professors there, but 
But uh, one of my seminary professors had done some itinerant work there for quite some time, and they'd had a history of having pastors there that uh, taught the Bible. Uh, so this was a congregation that knew the Scriptures quite well. They knew theology quite well. They knew the confession quite well. And they are circled around me. Um, that was a period of examination, I mean to tell you. Um, this is, and it was healthy. It was healthy. The questions they were asking were the appropriate questions because they, they were looking for a pastor. They wanted to know, what is my position on this doctrine? What is my position on that doctrine? Where is my heart in this matter? Where is my heart in this? They're free to ask me anything. And it seemed to me like I was up there for two hours. I was probably only up there for 45 minutes. Um, that was healthy. It was a good thing. And this is the best construction that we could put on what is going on in verse 24. The Jews circle around Jesus. And the idea is they're all the way around him, and they're hitting, with the, hitting him with this question, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. That's the best construction we could put on this. They really wanted to know. Now, do I think that's the construction we should put on this? Mm-mm. No. Why? Because so much of the context. All the way back in chapter 5, verse 18, they were seeking to kill him, weren't they? What do I think they're doing here? I think, they want, I think they're looking for Jesus to make a clear statement so they can mount a charge against him, charge him with blasphemy, and destroy him. I think it's what's going on here. Now, before we go any further, just a matter of housekeeping here. Notice the question that's being asked in verse 24. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And here we are in about the middle of John's gospel. And the question comes up, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And you don't need to turn there, but I'm going to turn there, and I'm going to read a verse that I've read many times to you. John doesn't leave us in the dark as to why he's writing his gospel, does he? He comes out and tells us he's writing his gospel. He says in verse 31 of chapter 20 that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose. And it's quite interesting that here we are, mounting in the midst of this tension, towards the end of one lengthy section of this gospel. Some commentators end this section in verse 42, recognizing an inclusio. That's a whole other story. I don't want to throw too much at you. But whether you, whether you end this at verse 42 or whether you end it at the end of chapter 12, I don't care to debate that. But either way, this section is coming to a close, and there is a question on the table. Are you the Christ? And it is the question, isn't it? It is the question. It's certainly the question. Now, Jesus has told the Samaritan woman all the way back in chapter 4, he made it very clear he was the Messiah. He come right out and gave her a plain answer. We have seen that the disciples, in so many words, have also confessed Jesus to be the one who was to come. And I think we could make an argument, even though the words aren't quite, uh, yes, uh, you are the Messiah, but I think we could make an argument that to the blind man, Jesus has revealed himself pretty clearly uh, to the blind man. But so far, he has yet to give 
a clear, plain statement to these rulers. And we're going to ask ourselves the question, why? Why, why not tell these Jews? Why not just say, yes, I'm the Messiah? I, I, think, I think the reason is uh, they're, they're, wanting to get that, they're wanting to get that confession so that they can go back and get the charge uh, going and um, they can charge him with blasphemy and then they can, they can terminate him right there. Remember, Jesus knows the heart. He doesn't need, um, he doesn't need anybody to tell him what's in their heart. As a minister of the gospel, when I talk with people, try to help people, I don't know what's in a person's heart until they tell me what's in their heart. But Jesus doesn't need us to tell him what's in our heart. In fact, he understands what's in our heart better than we do, doesn't he? Sometimes that's an uncomfortable thought, but there are plenty other times where that is a great thought, that he understands us so well. But I think traditionally, is the, the traditional answer to this question is that they would have misunderstood him because they were looking for a political messiah. And I, I think that's, that's as strong as answer as we could give here. They would misunderstand because they had no category yet. Even the disciples hardly had a category yet for a Messiah that would suffer or for a Messiah that would be crucified. There was just no category in their minds or their heads for such, for such, a, a, such a one. I think this is why Jesus doesn't give them a clear answer. But if you look at verse 25, notice how Jesus answers them. He says, I told you. Okay, we're not, to, we're not to take this as he gave them this plain statement they're looking at, but Jesus has made it clear. He has made it clear. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. They're approaching Jesus with the wrong heart approach. They're failing to discern. Jesus says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And with that statement, Jesus is saying that his works are revelatory. What do I mean by revelatory? Probably not a word you've used already today two or three times, is it? You know, you probably talk revelatory. What's revelatory? It's the best word. What's it mean? It's simple to understand once you hear the word reveal in it, and revelatory to hear the word reveal. Revelatory simply means it's revealing. It's it's revealing. Jesus is saying these works are revelatory in the, in the sense that they reveal things. Um, they reveal things. And back in John chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, we get this if you look back there um, concerning this, this whole idea why this man was born blind. Jesus said this man, uh, he did, wasn't born blind because he had committed some particular sin or his parents could that committed some particular sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, that there's something that the Father wants to reveal through this work. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, as we think about these works, let's not limit these works to miracles. That would be a mistake. Because these works, the word works, they're being used here. They're being used in an encompassing way to encompassing more than simply miracles. Works would include Jesus' teaching and his instruction. It would include his acts of compassion. 
Because in all of these things, his acts of compassion are revealing, aren't they? He touches a leper and heals a leper. He can touch a leper and not be rendered after that exercise as unclean. No, when he touches a leper, he makes the leper clean. That's revelatory, that act of compassion. It reveals. And we got to go another step as we think about these works. We got to go one more step. We got to add in accordance with Scripture. We've got to add in accordance with Scripture. For example, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world uh, in John chapter 8, verse 12, right? And then in John chapter 9, he demonstrates he's the light of the world when he comes across the man who's been in darkness all his life, and he opens his eyes so that he can see. Now, um, this is not done apart from the context of Scripture. In fact, it's done in the context of of Scripture. That's what led me to Isaiah 42. And if you turn back to Isaiah 42, uh, not really to the part that we read. I mean, when I was reading Isaiah 42 earlier, I, I, I saw that I thought verses 10 through 17 make a wonderful call to worship, and it would have you there already uh, so that we could just turn to verses 6 and 7 um, and, and see one place in Isaiah where Isaiah prophesies that during the Messianic age, during the Messianic time, certain things are going to take place. Uh, Speaking here to the Lord's chosen servant, this is one of what we call the servant songs, which are fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the servant who is being prophesied here. And we're told in verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. And look at what comes next. A light for the nations. Verse 7, to open the eyes that are blind. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And this is why, and you don't need to turn there, just listen. This is why when John the Baptist is rotting away in Herod's prison, and he sends the his disciples to Jesus to ask the question whether he is the one who is to come or shall we look for another. You don't need to turn to Matthew 11, but in Matthew 11, verse 2, we're told, Now when John had heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In other words, what John is doing is he's sending his disciples. He's in jail, from jail. He tells his disciples, Go see Jesus and just ask him point blank. Give us a clear statement. Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Notice how, just listen to how Jesus answers. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What is Jesus pointing to? He's pointing to his works in recognition that John would understand that these works are the fulfillment of a prophecy from Isaiah. John understood he was the voice of one crying in the desert, didn't he? You see, I draw your attention to this because 
Jesus gives John the same answer that he's giving the Jews that are circling him around. It's the same answer, is it not? It seems to me that it's the same answer. But why does John get it? And these other guys don't get it. They have the wrong heart approach. It's the wrong heart approach. It's the wrong heart approach. Now, our text, one of the, I, I think one of the most difficulty I had with this text is it's, it's, it's a smorgasbord of these giant theological issues that somebody like me is tempted to say, okay, this week we're going to center on this, and this week we're going to center on that, and this week we're going to be in this chapter for six weeks. I mean, let me give you an example. If you look at, uh, say, verses 26 and 27, here we have the doctrine of predestination and election touched upon. Um, he says to them, he says, you don't believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That takes us back to the beginning of the chapter, which takes us back uh, to uh, these issues of predestination and election. We could go back to John chapter 6 with this. We could spend all morning on this, couldn't we? Doctrine of predestination and election. It's a doctrine, doctrine that's hated by the church. You bring up predestination and election in some circles, you get thrown out. And it's so clear in Scripture, nevertheless. Or there's a, the issue of eternal security. And uh, from that, perseverance of the saints. Look at verses 28 and 29. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Who will snatch them out? No one will snatch them out of my hand. Not even ourselves. We can't snatch ourselves out of his powerful hand. But if that's not enough, look what he says in verse 29. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Just in case you don't think that Jesus' hand's enough, now there's this other hand, uh, the Father's hand. Eternal security. Perseverance of the saints. Uh, you could look down to verse 35. We're going to talk about this a little bit, but not like we could. Jesus says the Scripture cannot be broken. There we have the authority of Scripture. And we could spend a lot, we could spend all morning on that, the way Jesus uses one little detail of a psalm, which we're going to look at, in order to establish a point. Uh, there we see the authority of Scripture. We could look at verses 37 and 38, and I am going to spend a little bit of time on that, but that speaks to apologetics. I'll, I'll read those verses when we get to them. But if you go back to verse 30, here we have the doctrine of the essential unity of the Trinity, when Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Well, some look at that and say, well, what Jesus is saying is simply that his will is aligned with the will uh, of the Father. No, 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 no. No, they, they wouldn't have picked up stones to chuck at him for that. That would be something that would be commended. Someone wanting to align their life with the Father so closely that, uh, that they could say that my actions are one with the Father, that would be commendable. They realize Jesus is saying something else. Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one. But Jesus is not, and, 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 and we, we don't want to blur the personhood here. Interestingly enough, that in the Greek, one is in the neuter. Greek words have, uh, some are masculine, some are feminine, some are neuter. One is neuter in this text. Personhood is not being identified here. Essential essence, if you will. Is what's, what Jesus is saying is, I am of the same essence with the Father. 
Now, did they understand that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Look at verse 31. They've got the stones to prove they understood that. Stones are in hand. They understood that. They understood that statement. They've got these, uh, these stones in their hand. They pick up stones. We're told that they pick up stones again to stone them. This isn't the first time. You know, Jesus answers them. Uh, really with, I think, a, a confusing answer. Um, he begins, he says in verse 32, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? That, that's simple enough. But the Jews answer him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Now, some commentators talk about irony in John's gospel. Here's another example of irony, because the reader understands that Jesus isn't making himself to be God. Jesus is God. John starts his gospel by establishing that. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's not making himself to be God. He is God. But then Jesus gives them an answer that I think is not very easy to understand. Jesus answers them. He says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the Word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? When you've read that in the past, have you found that easy to understand? Have you just went past that and was like, I don't know what that was. I'm just going to keep going. Have you ever done that with passages of Scripture? You wouldn't get the, I mean, you'd be stuck somewhere if you didn't do that, wouldn't you? You'd still be stuck. Um, you don't need to turn there. But I'm going to go back to the Psalm 82 because this is where Jesus is quoting from. Psalm 82, when he uses the word law, he's meaning it in a large sense, uh, meaning the entire Old Testament. And Psalm 82 is not easy, and it's, not a, it's, it's a, somewhat of an obscure psalm. And if, if, if I was just going to preach on this particular point, I'd be making a lot of that. Um, but uh, just to give you kind of an explanation of what Jesus means here, the psalm starts out really mysteriously. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. It starts out this way. God has taken his place in the divine council. And we could ask ourselves, wait a second, divine council? Sounds like the beginning of Job, doesn't it? Uh, what is this divine council? We can ask all kinds of questions about this divine council. In the midst of the gods, lowercase g, O-D-S, he holds judgment. Gods. What is meant by gods? In the, in the Hebrew, it's Elohim. That's the word that's being used there. And Elohim is used in the Old Testament for God, uppercase G, O-D. It's also used for false gods, lowercase G, O-D, S. It's also used in some context to describe angelic beings. But very, it's rare, but on occasion, it expresses men. And the interpreter has to make a decision. What is, how is this word being used in this context? If you look down to verse 6, well, I asked you just to listen, but um, it's force of habit of saying look down. But just listen for a moment. Jesus said, I said you are God's son of the most high, all of you. In verse 7, he says, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And I think because of verse 7, that they're told that they're going to die 
uh, like men. I think what's in view here is judges, not angelic. I told you you need your thinking cap. I, I just, just I, I hang with me. We're almost there. <laughs> you never disappoint, Stephanie. You just never disappoint. I love it. Um, where was I at? Um, I think men are in view here. Human judges. Uh, human judges are what's in view here. And they're referred to as gods with a lowercase g in this context because they are sitting in the judgment seat. There, We could say as a pastor is an under-shepherd where Jesus is the shepherd. Jesus would be the shepherd with a capital S. A pastor would be a shepherd with a lowercase s. An under-shepherd. Whereas these judges, God would be the judge with a capital J, and these judges who sit in the office that God has appointed them to, uh, they would be judges with a lowercase j. And I, I think that Jesus shines light on this. If, if we think that through for a minute, and we go back to John chapter 10, and we think about John chapter 10, Jesus says to them, is it not written in your law, that's verse 34, I said you are God's. Now, verse 35, his logic is this. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I think what he's saying here is, if you called these men gods with a lowercase g, and Scripture is authoritative, it can't be broken, they believe that. They, by the way, they believe Scripture was authoritative. Um, so if human judges could be referred to as gods with a lowercase g, why are you wanting to throw stones at me because I'm calling myself the Son of God, being that I'm the one whom the Father has sent? Now, you see, it's a, it's a lesser, it's a greater argument. Do you follow me? Um, this might help. I have a quote here. Uh, that, that might help. The Reformation Study Bible. And I think some of you have the Reformation Study Bible. Uh, this would be in the larger st study Bible. It wouldn't be in the, the, uh, the uh, concise one. It might be in the concise one. I don't know. But in the regular Reformation Study Bible, there's a summary that goes like this. Quote, Jesus' argument may be understood as follows. Rather than taking offense because this word is used of me, you should examine my credentials which proved my Father has sent me into this world. It's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful comment. What is Jesus saying? Rather than taking offense of the fact that I'm calling myself the Son of God, what you really ought to do is look at my resume. Uh, there's a lot of works on that resume. And don't those works not only prove that the Father has sent me, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Because not only are they impossible, humanly impossible to do, but they've been prophesied by Scripture that they would come to pass. And that's key. Remember when we were talking about miracles a while back, a few messages ago sometime, that miracles in themselves, we've got to be careful with miracles in themselves. Because a miracle in itself does not necessarily attest to divine authority. 
And a case in point, a classic example would be Moses throwing his staff down before Pharaoh and it becoming a serpent. And then the magicians throwing their staffs down before Pharaoh and their staffs becoming serpents. You see, there's miracles. We can throw our staffs down all day long and they're going to be a staff when they hit the floor all day long. But Moses throws his staff down and becomes a serpent. Pharaoh's magicians throw their staffs down and become a serpent. Would anyone care to follow Pharaoh's magicians? There's spiritual authority there, but it's not of God. Now, how do we discern the difference? Because Moses is the man of God. How do we know Moses is the man of God? Because Moses' activities align with promises that were made to Abraham. But Jesus' miracles align with promises made through the prophets. That's the message he sends back to John the Baptist, isn't it? And that's the message he's giving these characters. So why, why does John the Baptist get it and these characters don't get it? It's the hard approach. It's the hard approach. In verses 37 and 38, I wish we had time and we had the mental act, acuity to, 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 to look into this because a lot of us are interested in apologetics, and there is so much here about apologetics. I mean, we should be studying how Jesus does apologetics. How does Jesus do apologetics? Verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. And by the way, apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. Notice how Jesus defends this. He says, if I'm not doing the works of the Father, don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. He's pressing these works. And there's something going on in this verse that we won't see in English as easily as if we were Greek readers, we would see it right away. And it's in this phrase, know and understand. Know and understand. And someone said, well, let's know and understand. Well, in the Greek, the same word is used in two different tenses. I can read it to you, and you don't have to know these words to get what I'm talking about. It's, um, listen to the first word, genote. You hear that? Genote. Don't worry about what it means right now. Just listen to it. Genote. And there's a word in between them, chi, which means and. Chi, and. Genote, and, or chi. Genoskete. Genote, genoskete. Now you can hear the beginning of that part sounds the same, doesn't it? Because it is. They're both forms, verb forms of the verb genomai. And Jesus is playing on words here, and he's making a point, a wonderful point, with these tenses. And I, I'm looking at you. I'm not going to take you through the tenses. I'm going to take you into the aorist and the subjective present. And some of you are really into that. I know, Troy, you'd love to go through that. He's saying no. He's saying no. What does this mean? I'll give you, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the best foot forward of what that means. Who was the first person in the room this morning? Was it you, Jim? Was it you, Donald? Was it Alex? Probably one of you guys. Who turned the lights on? Alex. Okay. That's a past event, right? Turning the lights on, correct? Okay. Are the lights presently on? Okay, so with that, pra with that past event, namely of flipping that switch, there is a present implication of that past event. Namely, the lights are still on. 
You get that? Okay, that's speaking to one of the tenses that are being used here. This past event that now continues to have a present implication. Right? Now, the other tense here is that this would continue to go on and continue to go on and continue to go on and continue to go on. So Jesus is saying, he is saying in this verse that even if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know, that you may know. In other words, that you may get some insight. Just like that flipping that light switch. Okay, you'll get this insight. The light switch will be turned on. And now that the light switch is turned on, there's a present implication that the lights are on, that you may continue to know after that. And that's, that's what's be, they're attempting to capture that with the word understand. In other words, that you would come to know, we could put it this way, that you would come to know. And having come to know in the past, you would keep on knowing. That you would keep on knowing. Do you see that? Leon Morris helpfully puts it like this. This might be really helpful for you. Jesus is looking for them to have a moment of insight and then to remain permanently in the knowledge that that moment has brought them. Have you had that moment of insight? And are you currently residing under the effects of that moment of insight? Jesus is saying that when his works are seen for what they are, they prove he is one with the Father. Now, did that, did that convince these guys? Verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him. He escaped from their hands. Why? I was going to name this sermon the, salt, the stultifying effect of unbelief. Stultifying. Telling Tammy about that word yesterday, stultify. How many used the word stultify this morning? How many used this word stultify in the last 24 hours? How many in the last 24 months? How many have never even heard of it before? Stultify. <laughs> Talks like that. Uh, I get it from William Hendrickson. That's where, I, that's where I get it from. And actually, it's the perfect word. The stultifying effects of unbelief. Well, what does stultify mean? It means, let me give you the, instead of giving you the definition off the top of my head, it means tending to stifle. Now, stifle we know a little better, right? And some of us in the medical community, I understand, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that stifle is sometimes used in the medical community for suffocate. Is that correct? Because it stops an action. It stops one from uh, completing an action. Now, listen to the definition of stultify. It has a tendency to stifle, that is, to stop oneself of acting. It has a tendency to stop oneself from acting in enthusiasm, initiative, and listen to this last part, and this last part is how I take this word in this context, freedom of action. That's why I thought that'd be a great title. The stultifying effect of unbelief. Why? Because to stultify is to stop oneself from having freedom to act. It's a stultifying effect. But we need to add blinding to it. 
blinding and stultifying. Let me flesh it out for you. Unbelief is undergirded by ill will toward Jesus. They got stone in hand. I think this whole thing's about getting Jesus to say something so that they can execute him. That's what I think this whole thing's about. You could be wrong. When they circle him in the Solomon's colonnade, maybe they really do want to know. I don't know. But I think what they're trying to do, I think it's pretty clear from the context, they want to, they want to kill him. Certainly there are members among these guys that want to kill him. Do they all want to kill him? I don't know. But why? Are they, why? Well, this unbelief is undergirded by ill will, thus the wrong heart approach. And unbelief equals a lack of spiritual understanding, of spiritual insight. Jesus' opponents, here's the, here's the scary thing. Here's the scary thing, is that Jesus' opponents aren't like these heathens from, you know, the Gentile towns out there in the middle of the backwoods someplace. These guys are deeply religious people. They're people that um, many folks would be listening to, following, expecting to have the answers. We saw that when the man born blind is healed. Who do they take him to? They take him to this to these, to these religious people. They take them to these guys. And this is the brilliance of Satan. He has these guys dressed up as angels of light. They knew and loved the Scriptures. They knew and loved the Scriptures. They believed in one God of heaven. They believed that they loved the God of heaven, although Jesus told them that they didn't. The knower of all hearts said, if you love the Father, you'd love me also. They'd have been deeply offended if someone would have said, you don't love God. They'd have said, what do you mean I don't love God? I've devoted my life to God. Can't you see the outfit I'm wearing? Can't you see all of the things that I'm doing? Can't you see the way I've dedicated my life to God? Can't you see the discipline I'm exercising? They believe they love God. They believed the Scriptures to be His Word. They believed many orthodox truths, but they lack spiritual sense or discernment. Why? They're blinded by their tradition. They're blinded by the praise of others. They're blinded by ill will toward Jesus. This all speaks to the heart. Now here we see the importance of the right heart approach to Scripture. Jesus says all the way back in John chapter 7, verse 17, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know. This speaks of the heart approach, doesn't it? We must approach God's Word with a surrendered heart to know and understand, to have a moment of insight and then to remain permanently in that knowledge, growing in that knowledge. We have to approach the Scriptures this way. Lord, teach me from Your Word and take me wherever Your Word takes me. Whether it crosses my will or it crosses my current understanding of things or not, take me wherever it takes me, because my heart desire and my approach is to do your will. Has God fashioned that heart approach in your heart? Now, the answer to that question will come to surface as soon as we come across a controversial doctrine that you're passionate about. You know, it's synod, we were... We were talking about some controversial doctrines, and I don't want to get into that because I'm wrapping this thing up. But, but sometimes because we're passionate about a certain doctrine, we're unwilling to believe what is clearly taught, aren't we? 
But if we want spiritual discernment, we have to have the right heart approach to what he has revealed. Does that make sense? Our spiritual discernment requires surrender, not to worldly wisdom, not to human tradition, but surrender to God's will. So we're going to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing to go wherever your word takes me. You died on the cross in my place, therefore, I will follow you wherever you go. Heavenly Father, I thank you for bringing us through, Father. Um, arguably, there's a lot here, and it stretches our minds. You know, Father, I pray that our minds would, would not just walk away from this this morning as we begin to fellowship and go about our day, but, but Father, you would press chapter 10 on our hearts and minds. For, oh, Father, this is a dangerous intersection that we're at, Father. For we see of these Jewish leaders, they appear to be the most righteous and they appeared to be the most religious people in the land. And here they are with stones to stone Jesus. Well, Father, we know that every generation has uh, these folks that Satan dresses his minions up, uh, leading his minions to truly believe that they're in the fold, leading his minions to truly believe that they have the truth, when in actuality they're enemies of you. Well, Father, we know that there's many congregations being led by these characters. Well, Father, what we're more concerned about is there's so many people walking around believing very much that they're in the fold when, in, in fact, they're outside. Well, Father, we pray that you'll press these things upon our hearts, O oh Lord. And help us, O oh Father, to discern one of the things we must look for in a person's life is spiritual discernment. We know that only you can give that. A discernment that aligns with your word. Well, oh Father, we see how key your word is in making our way through these tricky, these tricky woods. Well, oh Father, without your word, without the light of your word, Father, we will be lost. So, oh Father, we thank you. We praise you that you've given us your word. Give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.